23. Acts chapter 23. Acts chapter 23. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. A-X-E, Acts. <laughs> All right, well there. All right, let's pray. Well, Father, we've enjoyed the singing this morning. We've enjoyed the fellowship. Enjoyed being able to give of our increase. And now, Lord, we pray that you'd minister to us through thy word. You've chosen the foolishness of preaching, and you have a fool up here to preach it. And so, Lord, I pray that you would Take this piece of dirt up here, fill it with your spirit, your power, your passion, your words, your wisdom. Let the clay not speak of itself, but Lord, let it simply be a vessel, an instrument for you to speak to us. Because Lord, that's what we want. We want to hear from heaven. Spirit of God, we want you to take these words and apply them to each and every heart. I want you to stand behind this pulpit. I want you to sit next to each and every one of us. Pray, Lord, you're ministering in junior church, hearts of the young people there. But, Lord, when it's all said and done, that you might receive all the glory for anything that was said or heard in here today. And thank you for that. In Christ's name, amen. Acts chapter 23, we're going to start reading at verse 1. It says, And Paul, earnestly beholding the council, uh, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded them that stood by him to smite him on the mouth. Then said Paul unto him, God shall smite thee, thou whited wall, for sittest thou to judge me after the law, and commandest me to be smitten contrary to the law? And they that stood by said, Revilest thou God's high priest? Then said Paul, I wist not, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it is written, Thou shalt not speak evil of the ruler of thy people. But when Paul perceived that, one, that one, the one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I'm a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, of the hope and resurrection of the dead am I called in question. And when he had so said, there arose a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the multitude was divided. The Sadducees said that there is no resurrection, neither angel nor spirit, but the Pharisees confessed both. And there arose a great cry, and the scribes that were the Pharisees' part arose and strove, saying, We find no fault in this man, but if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. And when there arose a great dissension, the chief captain, fearing lest Paul should have been pulled in pieces of them, commanded the soldiers to go down and to take him by force from among them and to bring him into the castle. And the night following, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem, so must thou bear witness at Rome. And here we have an interesting account of uh, one of the times Paul was being persecuted. He's per been persecuted a number of times. He gave us a bit of a record in Corinthians where he talked about all the times he was whipped and all the times he was beaten and all that stuff. But here's an account of a hearing that was held because of his preaching. Uh, he had gone to the temple uh, on one of the feast days 
He had shaved his head with the people that were with him. Uh, had done the same thing. He was fulfilling everything he could. He was trying to be uh, all things to all men. He was not being a Jew again, but he was trying to, uh, under the Jew, be like the Jew as far as he could go. So he had no problem with uh, shaving his head and appearing that he was uh, with them in that. And uh, things were going okay until about the seventh day. And there were some Jews there from Asia Minor, or modern-day Turkey, who recognized him. And they began to cause a fuss, and they said, this is the guy, this is the guy that's causing all the trouble. This is the guy that's speaking against Moses, and, and, and all that. So almost called him an anti-Semite. I mean, it, was, it was that bad. And uh, so they got the crowd all worked up, and uh, emotions were going crazy, and so they decided the best thing to do is to beat up Paul. And so they came upon him, and they began to beat him up, and uh, they kept beating him until law enforcement showed up. And it's good sometimes when law enforcement shows up. I remember Brother Bear talking to me about uh, the time him and Brother Sutek were um, preaching at uh, Harvard, Harvard University. There was an open area there, a common area. And they went in there and they began preaching. And uh, Bear said he was preaching away and he noticed that he was drawing a crowd. But the crowd kept getting closer and closer and closer until he's starting to begin to panic. And he said, man, they're, they're right there on me. He said, and then I felt a hand on my shoulder. And thoughts arose in his heart. <laughs> and he said, as I turned around, it was a police officer who said, come with me. And he got him out of the crowd because who knows what students from Harvard University would do to somebody. He said, I thought it was just good kids that went to Harvard. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, so Paul is, uh, they're beating him up. Law enforcement shows up. They get him out of there. and They're going to take him into the castle, which I believe would be the praetorium. Uh, and so as Paul is ascending up the steps with the, uh, with the Roman soldier, uh, he says something to the soldier like, can I talk to these people? And he said it in Greek. And the soldier looked at him and said, you can speak Greek? He said, yeah, I can speak Greek. And the soldier said, I thought you were that Egyptian guy that caused all that trouble a while back and caused such a mess. He said, no, I'm not, I'm not an Egyptian. I'm, I can speak Greek. And so the captain said, all right, you can stand at the top of the steps, and if you want to address these people, I'll let you do that. And so Paul begins to preach to the crowd. Now, they're in Jerusalem. So he then begins to speak Hebrew. Uh, Paul was quite literate in numerous languages. This is what Paul meant in 1 Corinthians 14, 18. You don't have to turn there. But he's, he's talking about tongues. He says, I thank my God I speak with tongues more than y'all. And when he meant that, he said, I can speak languages because that's what tongues is. Tongues are languages. He could speak Greek. He could speak Hebrew. Probably could speak Latin. Maybe even speak English. I don't know. But he spoke a lot of different languages. And uh, not as these, these silly charismatics try to tell you what tongues are. Some kind of babbling. Uh, and by the way, I can speak in tongues. If you, I, I really can. If, you, if you'd like me to speak in tongues, it's very simple. Uh, you like a Mahanda? Sell a Mahanda? Uh, you buy a Mahanda. How's that pretty good, huh? You like Mahanda? Sell Mahanda? You buy Mahanda. So that's how you speak in tongues. And they always have that Handa or Shandai or Shanda. And you could speak in tongues if you'd like, because what I just said was, you like a Mahanda? I sell a my Honda, you buy a my Honda. You say it quickly enough, you'll impress all your charismatic friends. They'll say, look at that, a Baptist that's got it. Anyway, so he's on the steps and he's preaching to these people. And he gives his testimony. He talks about what happened on the, uh, on the road to Damascus and how he had seen the Lord in a vision and, and uh, 
how Ananias had come to help him out and, and how he'd gone to Jerusalem and he escaped from Jerusalem because people wanted to kill He gives him the whole testimony. And in Acts 22, verse 22, it says, and going back to Acts 22, he says, in verse 22, he says, they gave him audience under this word. So they're listening. They're standing there saying, uh-huh, yeah, uh-huh. And after they listened a while, it says, and then lifted up their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth. He's not fit that he should live. <laughs> so they listened to him for a little bit, and they said, kill him. Let's get him. Need to put him to death. Not a great response. Verse 23, and as they cried out and cast off their clothes and threw dust in the air, so here comes the riot. Because that's the way they rioted in those days. They cried out. They would cast off their outer garments and what have you. They would throw dust in the air. And they would go crazy. And then they tried to kill the guy. And so Paul, right here, will be experiencing his own summer of love. Being the target of this riot. How many remember that? Uh, Jenny Durkin, the mayor of Seattle. Who has a D behind her name, by the way. I've told you what that means. A D behind the name means deluded, uh, delusional, deceptive, dumb, dumb, stupid, uh, uh, disingenuous. Any politician that has a D behind the name, that's what it stands for. You want to argue that with me? We'll discuss all the major cities in this country that are run by Democrats, and you'll tell me how wonderful they're handling the crime situation and how wonderful it is to live there and how good they are with dealing with taxes and all that stuff like that. You want to argue that with me? Go ahead. She was a Democrat, mayor of Seattle, was on Chris Cuomo's show, and made that statement. She looked at the, 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 all the stuff going on in Seattle, and she said, I think it's a summer of love. Well, people died at the summer of love. That's one thing they don't like to bring up. And so I, I, I think of all the ludicrous stuff that went on during the 2020 and on with all the riotings all over the, all over the country. There was Omar Jimenez, or Jimenez, who was standing in front of a building engulfed in flames during a protest in Kenosha, Wisconsin, who said, it's fiery but mostly peaceful protests. Uh, I'm glad things like that happen because I know the average American citizen realizes how stupid that is. And maybe before this next election and maybe before 2024, people will wise up and realize, you know what, Democrats really don't know how to run a country. They don't know how to run a city. Uh, all, they do is, all they know how to do is run their mouths is about what, the, what they know how to run. I think of Ali Velshi, who was an MSNBC reporter. Also, he's in Minneapolis in the middle of a riot, and he's standing in front of a burning building at cars that are burning around him. And he's saying, you know... Uh, he said, I, I want to be clear, I want to, to characterize this, it, it's mostly a protest. Uh, it, generally speaking, it's not unruly. As the building is burning behind him, as the cars are being turned over, he makes that statement. I'm sick of the riots. I think about uh, the Tea Party events. Um, you want to talk about peaceful protest. What is a peaceful protest? I'm just chasing a rabbit right now, so bear with me. What is a peaceful protest? Go to the Tea Party rallies. Go back to where they did it. The Tea Party rallied and protested during the day. The police were never attacked. There weren't any buildings burnt. In fact, the testimony was that the places they went to protest usually were cleaner when they left than when they got there. That's a peaceful protest. If you didn't know what a peaceful protest is, that's a peaceful protest. 
what you saw in 2020 in Seattle, Portland, Kenosha, uh, Minnesota, etc., 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 those were riots. Those were riots, just, just to help you with that. You know, the Tea Party never set up chop zones and chaz zones and all that nonsense. They never raided the stores. They didn't go to the Apple store in Scottsdale and steal computers and think you could get away with it. They protested. And by the way, just, just, to, just to put my two cents worth in on this January 6th, you know, insurrection. Just, just to put my two cents worth in, uh, Jack Del Rio, and you're probably familiar with this, Jack Del Rio, defensive coordinator for the Washington, whatever they are now, commanders, uh, made a statement, and he probably made a misstated when he said dust up, because what happened on January 6th was $1.5 million of damage and some people died. It was more than a little bit of a dust up, but I understand his point. He said, we're making a big fuss out of this. And since 2020, there were riots all over the country and people died and buildings burned and people lost their businesses and they lost their possessions and nobody made a big fuss out of that, but we're making a big fuss out of this. Okay, I agree with you, Jack. I agree with you. And I don't know if you watched those hearings or not. I didn't because I probably knew what they were going to do. But Alan Dershowitz did. Alan Dershowitz is the tenured Harvard Law professor very smart guy. He made this statement, he said, about the hearings. He said, take, for example, President Trump's speech on January 6th. They showed his speech. No, they didn't. They didn't show his speech. They showed part of his speech. Dershowitz said this. Uh, He said at the end of the speech, he wanted people to show their voices patriotically and uh, peacefully. They doctored the tape. They edited those words out. If a prosecutor ever did that, they would be disbarred. You can't present part of the tape and deliberately omit the rest of the tape in order to mislead the audience, especially when the other side has no opportunity to cross-examine, no opportunity to present its own evidence. That's not some crazy Fox News reporter. That's Alan Dershowitz, tenured law professor at Harvard University. In fact, he, he, he said it's like this. He said, the hearings that, you're, that are going on are like a basketball game where one side is allowed to go on the court and the other side isn't. So the one kind, they can shoot, they can do layups, they can do everything they want to do because there's nobody there to defend. He said, that's what this is going on. And the interesting thing is that Schumer's office knew about this before it happened. They had got the intel. There was intel out that this, something like this, there's going to be stuff going on January 6th. Schumer's office knew that, and they never told the Capitol Police. Can I ask you why? Why did they never tell the Capitol Police? Sounds to me like he wanted it to happen so they could have these stupid hearings about January 6th. And I'm going to get off of this in a minute, but let me just ask you a question. I have heard them say our democracy was threatened. Our very way of life was in jeopardy. Let me ask you this. What if, <coughs> just supposing, <coughs> just supposing, the rioters would have got their way? They, what, just supposing they would have taken over the Capitol, they would have chased all the other people out, and they would have said, this building is ours. <coughs> then what? <laughs> then what? Is anything going to change in the country? If they would have taken it over, I guarantee you, in less than an hour, SWAT would be there, anti-terrorist units would be there, the National Guard would be there, and eventually they would be thrown out. No, nothing is going to change. You don't take over the United States by taking a building. 
I mean, you think about that. They took over, let's say they took over the building. What, what are the generals in the Pentagon going to say? Oh, I guess we need to follow them now because they got the building. <laughs> what are the cabinet members in the White House going to say? Well, we've got to listen to them now. They got the building. How stupid. Democracy was never threatened. Peaceful transfer of power was temporarily threatened, but never in danger. It was just a bunch of stupid people that were acting like idiots who eventually, if they had taken it over, would have been taken out. And then life would be back to normal. Threat to democracy. Our country was in jeopardy. Never, never was it in jeopardy. Anyway, just thought I'd let you know. So here's Paul. Paul has been brought before this council. Um, he spoke to them. They wanted to kill him. The soldier takes him in. And protects him in the castle. The next day they're going to have another council meeting. How does Paul deal with these circumstances? That's what we need to look at this morning. How is Paul dealing with these circumstances? Well, there are a few factors involved that help us understand how Paul handled this. I'm bringing this up because there may come a day. There may come a day. So take notes. There may, may come a day. One of the factors is this with Paul. is what we call the persecutory factor. Paul was not shocked by these events. He was not shocked when he was persecuted for his faith because there is this thing called the persecutory factor. Uh, go to Acts chapter 9. Paul knew it. Go to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, and starting at verse 15, this is after Paul's call, and God gets a hold of Ananias and said, I want you to go take care of Paul, and I want you to tell him some things. In verse 15, but the Lord said unto him, Go thy ways to an Ananias, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. So Ananias went to see Paul, gives him the message. Now look at verse 16. For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. So from the very beginning, at the call, when Paul was actually called, he knew he was going to suffer. He knew he was going to suffer. And the Lord said, not just suffer, but you're going to suffer uh, another, another location. Well, here, great things uh, must he suffer for my name's sake. So Paul knew that. So there was no shock. Neither should there be a shock when any Christian has to suffer. Go to John 15. John 15. John 15, Jesus is talking to his disciples in verse 20. He says this, Remember the word that I said unto you, The servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. So the Lord's forewarning his disciples. He said, it's, it's going to get a little rough. It's going to get a little dicey out there. He said, if they didn't respect me, but did to me what they did, or were going to do to me what they're going to do, he said, they're going to do it to you. So it shouldn't be a shock any time a Christian suffers for Jesus Christ. Second Timothy chapter 3, you don't have to turn there, but there's a verse you ought to know. It says, yea, all who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. That's the persecutory factor. 
And the only reason why that sounds so foreign to us is because we as Americans have lived in this Christian Disneyland for a couple hundred years. There have been some Christians in America that have suffered. But for the most part, this is Christian Disneyland. Here we are sitting in a nice building. Don't have to worry about the police coming in yet. Uh, we've got the air conditioning, what have you. We've got our roast going on at home. We're going to leave here. We're going to go home and eat. We're going to take our nap. We're going to come back tonight, hopefully, and uh, do it over again and what have you. And, and uh, that's, that's our life. But there are places in this world today that can't think that way. There are places in this world today that if they go to church, they may not come home. And they know that. There are places in this world today that have to meet secretly or underground. Never knowing when the authorities are going to find out. Never knowing if somebody has infiltrated their church just to give their location so the authorities can come in and arrest them. But that's the case around the world. Again, I'm thankful this is Christian Disneyland. But let's keep in mind that the Scripture teaches that there is persecution for believers. And it wasn't, again, in the early parts, the early ongoing of our country, it wasn't foreign, it wasn't uh, unheard of uh, with the early Baptists. I mean, the early Baptists, even before they came into this country, uh, I'll give you an account uh, in Europe, in the area of Brussels, there was an edict put out. And I don't have to tell you who the what the controlling church was at the time in Europe. Um, we know who they were. Uh, but the edicts it was about this. On the 10th of June, 1535, a furious edict was published at Brussels. Death by fire was the punishment on all Baptists who should be detected and should reuse uh, to abjure. If they recanted, they would still die, but not by fire. The men who were to be put to death by the sword, the women went into a sunken pit, whatever that was. Those who resist the operation of the edict by failing to deliver up Baptists, also known as Anabaptists, to the authorities were to suffer the same punishment as accomplices. So as Baptists, we, we, we should understand what suffering is. Um, an actual quote from that edict, by the way, said this, quote, we summon a, a command that from this time you make proclamation in all the parts of limits of your jurisdiction that all who are or shall be found to be infected by the cursed sect of Anabaptists or rebaptizers. See, the Anabaptists believed in rebaptizing because being sprinkled by water or having somebody dip their finger in water and make a cross on your forehead was not baptism. Baptism is total immersion. You go under the water, and around here, sometimes you come up out of the water. Um, that's baptism. And so that's what the Anabaptists believed. And by the way, they believed everything we believe. And so if we would have been living back then, we would have been an Anabaptist, and we would have been facing this kind of persecution. He says, infected by the curious sect of Anabaptists or rebaptizers, of what state or condition they may be, abettors, followers, and accomplices shall suffer the forfeiture of life and estate and shall without delay be brought to the severest punishment. So our Baptist brethren went through a lot before they did come to this country. That's why religious freedom was such a big deal in this country. They had ancestors that came out of that. We've talked about that before. Where are we in America? It's not getting any better. My sister-in-law sent me a, 
a thing called the New School Prayer. I thought I'd read it for you. Some kid in Minnesota wrote this. He said, Now I sit me down in school where praying is against the rule, for this great nation under God finds mention of him very odd. If Scripture now the class recites, it violates the Bill of Rights. At any time my head I bow becomes a federal matter now. Our hair can be purple, orange, or green. That's no offense. It's a freedom scene. The law is specific. The law is precise. Prayers spoken out loud are a serious vice. For praying in a public hall might offend someone with no faith at all. In silence alone we must meditate. God's name is prohibited by the state. We're allowing to, allowed to cuss and dress like freaks and pierce our nose and tongues and cheeks. We've outlawed guns, but first, the Bible. To quote the good book makes me liable. We can elect a pregnant senior queen and the unwed daddy our senior king. It's inappropriate to teach right from wrong. We taught, we're taught that such judgments do not belong. We can get our condoms and birth control, study witchcraft, vampires, and totem poles, but the Ten Commandments, not allowed. No word of God must reach this crowd. It's scary here, I must confess, when chaos reigns, the school's a mess. So, Lord, the silent plea I make, should I be shot, my soul please take. Amen. Kid in Minnesota wrote that. And my first thought is, why should some kid have to write that in a country that was founded on Christian principles? And it's obvious it's no longer a Christian nation. And what he describes is a description of schools all across the country. So it's not getting any better. And this generation coming up, it's going to be tough. And this generation coming up may actually face the persecution that their brothers and sisters in Christ around the country, around the world are facing. So that's the persecutory factor. Paul understood that. Secondly, there's what we call the civil rights factor. Paul exercised his rights as a Roman citizen. Uh, go back to Acts 22. Look at Acts chapter 22. Acts chapter 22. When Paul was arrested, they didn't know who he was, thought he was an Egyptian. And so they took him in the castle, and they're about to uh, whip him. They probably had the Roman cat of nine tails like they did with Jesus, and they're going to tie him up to the stake, and they're going to whip him and try to get him to confess. Verse 24, the chief captain commanded him to be brought into the castle and bade that he should be examined by scourging, that they might know wherefore they cried so against him. So they're going to beat him. And they're going to whip him, and they're going to ask what, what this is all about. Verse 25, And as they bound him with thongs, Paul said unto the centurion that stood by, got a question for you. Can you do this to a Roman? Can you do this to a Roman citizen? And the centurion stepped back and said, Are you a citizen of Rome? He says, Yeah, I'm a Roman citizen. Innocent before proven guilty. You can't do this to me. Well, that soldier immediately left. He went and got the captain. The captain came out and said, so you're a Roman citizen, huh? Paul said, yeah. And the captain said, you know, by a great sum of money, I bought my citizenship because you could do that in that day. You could spend, the, offer them enough money and you could pay your way into being a citizen. And Paul said, I am natural born. I am a natural born. Tarsus is in the Roman Empire. I'm a natural born citizen and you have no right to do to me what you're doing to me 
Can I say this? There's nothing wrong for a Christian to exercise their constitutional rights. Nothing at all wrong for you and I to exercise our constitutional rights. We're going to serve God. We're going to do what God wants us to do. I'm going to preach what God wants me to preach. And if the Constitution protects that, I'm going to use the Constitution. If it doesn't, I'm in trouble. But there's nothing wrong with that. I know some guys wax really spiritual and what have you. You know, I don't need any rights. I'm just serving God. Okay, you do it your way. I'll do it Paul's way. Paul said, I've got some rights as a Roman citizen. Nothing wrong for you exercising that right. I remember when we first shut down, or the, the, the pandemic first came about, and we were debating whether to shut down or what have you. And um, I called the Christian Law Association and uh, didn't talk to David Gibbs. I talked to his grandson. And uh, to be honest with you, I was not really pleased with the answers I got because he didn't really know what to tell me at the time. And I understand, I really didn't know what to do at the time. Uh, and I'll say this, the reason why, one of the main reasons why we did lock the doors here and have the meeting out in the parking lot is because I had people in here that were on oxygen. John Carmer used to sit there in his oxygen tank, used to make that noise that it made, you know. He finally lost enough weight and didn't have to have it. But at the time, he had an oxygen tank. And I'm thinking, I don't want to be the one responsible for bringing COVID in here, having him get it and having him die. And so we had meetings out there, which was really good because you could, you could have a ton of COVID all over you and you could just stay in your car. And you could listen to the message. You could honk your horn when you like something. I'd roll your window down, put your offering in the bucket that's being handed to you on a big long pole, and everything is great. And that worked fine until it got hot. And then I said, no, we're going to go back in. And we began the process of coming back in. We began the process of disinfecting after every service. And I'm telling you, if you have it, stay home. If you want to wear a mask in the service, wear the mask. That's fine. Uh, we had the seating seat arranged, so we would be distancing ourselves the way we should. Um, that's why I did that. My concern was with the health of the people I had here. But I knew. I knew we were classified by the Arizona State as an essential What's the term? Essential thing? Essential service. And so I had no problem. After it got hot out there, let's go back into the building. We can do it. And if somebody would have fussed about that and somebody would have came in and wanted to arrest us, what have you, I would have contacted attorneys again. I don't know if I would have been the CLA, but I would have contacted somebody. That's nothing wrong with exercising constitutional rights. In Memphis, Tennessee, we used to go and preach on Beale Street all the time. And uh, Ken Lansing is the guy that started that. Ken Lansing, uh, originally, he was using a banner. You've got a, great big, you've got a great big pole. You've got this four-by-six banner. You put the banner out there. He'd hold the banner, and he'd preach. Well, he was threatened with arrest after a while. And it just so happened that an attorney came by when the police were approaching him, and the attorney was named Nate Kellum. He has what's called the Center of Religious Expression. And Nate Kellum listened to us, and he said, Brother, Brother Ken, do you need some help? He said, I'm an attorney. I can help you. And that basically began Nate Kellum's uh, ministry of defending Christians doing what God wants them to do. 
And Nate Kellum took care of Lansing's, uh, Brother Lansing's issue. Later on, going down Beale Street, we had issues. The, the, the city wanted to stop us because they thought, oh, no, the banners are too high. It might hit some electrical wire or what have you. And Kellum went in there and dealt with the city of Memphis and got that straightened out. There was another issue where, well, the banners are scaring the horses. You know, they do the carriage runs. Banners are scaring the horses. We can't have that. And Kellum would go back in uh, to the city. And, uh, in fact, one, one night... The judge finally ruled in our favor just before we were leaving to go down on the Friday night. And after it's all said and done, the police department of Memphis was on our side. And they, they would look over us. You know, if, if we had, a, I had one police officer one time, I'm, I'm arguing with this guy, and the police officer come up and said, is there a problem? I said, I don't have a problem. He's got the problem. I don't have a problem. He said, well, if you need help, let me know. <laughs> our tax dollars at work. Hallelujah. Nothing wrong with exercising constitutional rights. Joe Verico's cousin in Rhode Island, Gail, passing blind, going to a park, passing tracks out to people, was arrested for doing that. And she contacted First Liberty and they won the case for her. Nothing wrong with using your constitutional rights. John MacArthur stood his ground in California and said, we're going to have church, you're not going to shut us down. And won the case and won a lot of money. For winning the case. Nothing wrong with a Christian exercising their rights. You have constitutional rights. Men and women died for those rights. The least you and I can do are exercise those rights. So that's the civil rights factor. Let me give you another factor. I call it the impeccability factor. Look at chapter 23, look at verse 1. Paul could go in front of this council and plead on the impeccability of his conduct. Look at what he says in verse 1. And Paul, earnestly beholding the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. You know what he was saying? Find something wrong with me. Look at, tell, me tell me how I'm living wrong. Tell me what I'm doing wrong. Tell me what sin I'm guilty of. Other than going against your religion, my character, my conduct is impeccable. And we'll assume he was referring to his life after his conversion. But he could have taken that back as far as before. When he was a Jew, in ignorance, he said. He said, I, I kept the law completely. He said, I, didn't, I, I, I was, did it perfectly. So Paul had an impeccable character. And... It's important as a Christian, no matter what the situation is, no matter what happens in the United States, no matter what happens, what have you, it's so important that when you are, if you are, arrested or criticized or what have you, it's so important that they have to point at what you believe and not at some stupid thing you've done. Let me say that again. If they were to come and get us, the issue ought to be what we believe, what I've preached, not some stupid thing I did with my life. Robert Reynolds Jones, famous guy. You might know him as Dr. Bob Jones, senior, born October 30th, 1883. The 11th of 12 children. That's crazy to have 12 kids. Eight is normal, 12 is crazy. Born in Skipperville, Alabama. 
converted at the age of 11, Sunday school superintendent at 12, and ordained to the ministry uh, by the Methodist Church at 15. You say, well, that was pretty young. That wasn't my business. They must have saw something in him. But Bob Jones was one of the greatest evangelists that ever roamed this country. Billy Sunday, who was alive at the, sa- at the time, called him the greatest evangelist of all time. He said he has the wit of Sam Jones, the homely philosophy of George Stewart, the eloquence of Sam Small, and the spiritual fervency of Dwight L. Moody. Quite a reputation. And one of the messages Bob Jones is known the most for is a message simply entitled, Do Right. He made such statements as, Do right, though the stars fall. Do right, I think that's a Patch the Pirate song. Do right till the stars fall. Do right. I forget how it goes. Uh, That came from Bob Jones. He said this, the two biggest little words in the English language are the two little words, do right. And it was Bob Jones that said it's never wrong. It's never right to do wrong to do right. It's never right to do wrong in order to get a chance to do right is the exact statement that he made. So Bob Jones was heavy on doing right. And that's the life that we need to live in front of this world. We don't know what's going to happen in this country. The rapture could be this afternoon, hopefully after the White Sox win. But the rapture could be, you know, this afternoon. But it may not be. It may be a long time before the rapture happens. And I've heard all the terminology. He's got the trumpet out of the, out of the, out of the, out of the case. He's wet his lips, ready to put it to his mouth. I've heard all of that. But it may be a while. And if people have a problem with us, again, it better be a problem with what we believe, not because we've been doing wrong. The testimony to have is they're, they're idiots, they believe the Bible, they believe in some guy named Jesus, and they believe the crazy stuff about heaven and hell and, and some book being the Word of God. But you know, they never did anything wrong. They never hurt me. They never did anything to us, never stole from our business, like so-and-so or so-and-so. I mean, these people live the life they should. It's just the crazy stuff they believe. That ought to be the accusation that comes upon us. Now, if you do right, if you live right, that doesn't mean uh, that the accusers will be pleased with that. If you look at verse 2 of Acts 23... After Paul said that, it says, And the high priest Ananias commanded that they, them that stood by, punch him in the mouth. <laughs> Here's Paul saying, you know, find something wrong with my conduct or character. And I said, oh, we'll find something wrong. And pow, popped him right in the mouth. To which Paul said, well, we'll get into that in a little bit. Here's a statement. What is the reward and portion of a good conscience from the world? To be smitten either on the mouth or with the mouth, either with the fist or with the tongue. There's nothing so enrages men of wicked consciences as the profession and practice of a good conscience doth. But better ten blows on the face than one on the heart. Better a thousand blows for a good conscience than one from it. No matter what happens, you maintain a good conscience, a clear conscience. But no matter what happens, do right. Do right at work, do right in your marriage, do right with your family, do right with your country. Do right! Do right. It's the best position to take. Now, the next factor. I call that the non-intimidation factor. And Paul wasn't intimidated by any of this stuff. 
You know, a lot of times when uh, there seems to be a problem or what have you, Christians get intimidated. Paul wasn't intimidated. In verse 3 of Acts chapter 23, after he gets punched in the mouth and he spits the blood out and what have you, and he can talk again, it says, Then said Paul unto, them, unto him, God shall smite thee, thou whited wall, for sittest thou to judge me after the law and commandest me to be smitten contrary to the law? He said, how, how, you, you're accusing me of doing something wrong, and you did something that was contrary to the law. We went through this in Sunday school. When we talked about the 23 legal violations that the people trying Jesus Christ were guilty of. One of them was using violence on a suspect. He said, you broken the, you punched me in the mouth, you commanded that to happen, and then you're going to tell me I'm wrong? And notice the phrase, whited wall. That was familiar. Jesus in Matthew 23 and verse 27 said, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye are like unto whited sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but within are full of dead men's bones and uncleanness. Jesus was criticizing the hypocrites of the day. And Paul's doing the same thing. He said, You're nothing but a stinking hypocrite. Now wait just a second here. Didn't Paul just speak evil of the ruler? You're not supposed to speak evil of the ruler. But in verses 4 and 5 of 23, And they that stood by said, Revilest thou God's high priest? Then said Paul, I wist not, brethren, that he was the high priest. For it's written, Thou shalt not speak evil of the ruler of thy people. They said, You just spoke evil about the high priest. And Paul said, What, what high priest? He said, What's he talking about? Ananias was there. He was the high priest. Now wait a minute. Ananias was there. But he was not officially the high priest because the Romans had taken that over. And the Romans had said, you know what, we'll make this guy the high priest and this guy could be the high priest. In fact, Ananias, according to Josephus, if I remember correctly, was sent back to Rome for a while. And he was never officially reinstated as a high priest. So Paul is technically right. What high priest? He's not the high priest. He's not officially the high priest. And Paul never apologized. If Paul would have been wrong and had violated the law, he would have said so. And listen to me. It's not reviling anybody when you point out their sin, no matter who it is that's guilty. Amen. He said, well, I don't think you should do that. Well, tell John the Baptist that. John the Baptist pointed out Herod's sin to the point where it got the woman so mad that she did what she could to get him beheaded, which is what happened. But John never backed off from that. He didn't revile Herod. He just said, hey, the woman you're with, that's, you did that the wrong way, pal. It's never wrong to point out sin. You can do it the correct way. You can do it politely. But it's never wrong to point out sin. Paul wasn't intimidated by this stuff. When he saw sin, he pointed it out. So Paul didn't revile the high priest. In fact, maybe Paul was thinking there isn't any high priest anymore other than the one sitting next to the father. And the next factor is the focus factor. Paul was staying focused on the essential thing. If you look at verse 6 of Acts chapter 23, and it's interesting how Paul did this. Acts chapter 23, verse 6. So Paul has looked around at this council. He knows who's there. He's made his statement on his conduct. He's already been punched in the mouth. In verse 6, it says, When Paul perceived that the one part was, were Sadducees and the other 
Pharisees, he cried out in the council, men and brethren, I'm a Pharisee and the son of a Pharisee. Uh, the hope and resurrection of the dead am I called into question. Paul said, wait a minute, you guys. Really, I'm just preaching about the resurrection. Notice he didn't mention resurrection of Christ because that's what they disagreed on. But they agreed on resurrection. The Sadducees and Pharisees had come together because they had one point of agreement. We hate Paul. Just like Democrats and rhino Republicans come together and say, we hate Trump. The same, same idea. So they had come together for one point of thing. Paul is looking at this thing and he's saying, you know what? I believe something that these guys believe that these guys don't believe. And so Paul makes a statement to the Pharisees. He said, hey, I'm here because I believe in the resurrection. Now, Paul perceived, he knew that the Pharisees didn't agree with him on Christ's resurrection, but they did agree on resurrection. And so that caused a stir of the Pharisees against the Sadducees. So, because the Sadducees, in Acts 23, verse 8, the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, neither angel nor spirit. And to be in the position that they were in as representatives of the religion of Israel, how in the world can you not believe in a resurrection, spirit, or angels? They were the liberals of the day. They didn't believe in any of that, you know, supernatural stuff. That was, that was their problem. Pharisees believed all of that stuff. And so Paul knew that. And so Paul found a point of agreement between him and the Pharisees. Paul said, hey, I'm a Pharisee. I'm a son of a Pharisee. And they knew his history. He'd been at the school of Gamaliel. He was one of the top students that they ever had. He said, hey, I believe in the, I believe in the, in the resurrection. And the result of that was the Pharisees got stirred up against the Sadducees. And now here's the point. Paul said, there's three areas Paul could have worked on. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in spirits. They didn't believe in angels. He could have attacked any of those three things or used any of those three things to pit the Pharisees against the Sadducees. But he used the one that was important. And that's the resurrection. That's the one that's important. And that's where the focus stayed on. And I've told you before, no matter what the situation, no matter what the mission, the thing that you have to maintain is that Christ died on the cross for the sins of the world, that he was buried, that he rose again the third day from the dead. That's what you have to stay focused on. No matter what. No matter whether the crowd is for you or the crowd is against you. The message is that Christ died on the cross for our sins, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day from the dead. That's where we always have to stay focused. Not going to argue about spirits, not going to argue about angels, but I'll tell you what, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And a lot of times in our witnessing, we get bogged down chasing this rabbit and chasing that rabbit when we need to stay with the message. Christ died on the cross for your sins. He was buried. He rose again the third day from the dead according to the scriptures. That's the message. That's the important thing. So Paul brings up resurrection. And I've told you before, everything that we believe as far as the essentials are concerned, are based on the statements of a resurrected Savior. Now, this is what you really need to get in your head. But Professor so-and-so at ASU says, Professor so-and-so at ASU is going to drop dead someday. They're going to put him in the ground, and that'll be it. But Dr. so-and-so over here said, Dr. so-and-so is going to drop dead someday. They're going to stick him in the ground, and that's the end as far as his 
teaching here on this planet. And everything he believed and everything he said goes right in the grave with him. What we believe was advocated by somebody that died, was buried, but did what no other religious leader has ever done, did what no other professor, wherever they may be, has ever done. He rose again from the dead. And he rose from the dead just like he said he would. He told him he was going to do that. He did that. Let me ask you a question. I have the option of believing in somebody who not only died but rose again from the dead and predicted he would do that. Said he would raise. He said, uh, uh, kill me in three days, I'll raise this body up. He said, I can do this myself. In three days. And he did it. Now, I've got the option of believing somebody like that or believing Dr. Flea Flicker or Flew Hummer or what have you in his theories of, uh, of uh, evolution or his theories of philo- philosophies or whatever. I've got, I've got that option. Who am I going to believe? I've got somebody here that's risen from the dead who said he was going to rise from the dead. Or I've got somebody over here that's going to die just like, just like a dog is going to die. I'll take him any day. And that's where we stay focused. I don't care what they say about marriage. Oh, we've got the science to back us up. And how many times has science been wrong? We've got the science to back up. You know, there there are 16 genders according to science. (laughs) There are two according to somebody that rose from the dead. I think you need to get your science caught up with the truth. I believe we called out of some some swamp somewhere. We lost our tail, and, which to me is ridiculous. I could use a tail to this day. How many times have you been walking in the house, you've got groceries in both arms, what have you, and you think, man, I wish I had a tail. The tail could hold something else, you know. I thought that when I was on the roofing, running a roofing crew, a tail would have come in so handy. Oh, you crawled out of a pit somewhere and you lost your tail. Well, somebody that rose from the dead said you were created male and female by God. Who are you going to believe? And then finally, there was the promise factor. Paul understood he was going to be persecuted. He had the option of using his rights as a Roman citizen, so he did that. He had an impeccable testimony and a conduct. He wasn't intimidated by these people. And he had a promise. He had the promise that God was going to take care of him. You know, one of the greatest things to have during a time of persecution is the promise that God is going to take care of you. I remember the, the story of two martyrs. Two martyrs are going to be burned at the stake. And uh, day before, as an older, mar- older believer, older disciple, a younger disciple, both scheduled to be burned at the stake. And the younger one was lighting a candle. And somehow the, the fire, what have you, got on his hand. And, oh. and then he said to the old, he said, I can't even take that and I've got to go out and be burned at the stake tomorrow? And the older disciple said this, you didn't need the grace of God to light the candle, but you'll get the grace of God when you burn at the stake. And account after account after account talks about God's people burning in the fire, preaching the gospel, singing praises unto God. And one martyr, I forget who it was, they had to relight the fire three times. They finally said, just stick a spear through him. They couldn't kill him. Because God gives grace in situations like that. You know, the Lord's going to come to Paul 
in verse 11. After he goes through all this stuff, you know, and they take him back, and they, I guess they put him in a jail in the, uh, in the castle. And that night, verse 11, that night following the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul. I know what they just did to you. Had no business punching in the mouth. Uh, no business beating you up before that. Be of good cheer, Paul. It says, Thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem, so must thou bear witness also at Rome. You're not going to die here, Paul. You're going to end up at Rome, and you're going to testify of me there at Rome. So Paul got to preach at the religious capital of the world, and then he's going to go preach at the political capital of the world. Who would not want that opportunity? But Paul had the promise. The Lord stood by him and said, we're not done yet. Not done yet. Matthew 28 and verse 20 in the Great Commission. And we, we, we always cite the Great Commission, you know. Uh, all power is given to me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever commanded. And we forget the last part. And the last part said, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. God doesn't take us to a point and say, okay, well, I'm done, I'm going home, you can finish the route, the rest, rest you know, do, do the rest you want to do, I'm, I'm done with this. Now the Lord's with us every step of the way. And the older I get, the more thankful I am for that. That no matter what happens to me, whether it be persecution, or whether it be just old age, He's with me always, even to the end of the world. Whether my end of the world be at the behest of a persecutor or because of cancer my end of the world he's with me all the way we went and visited um, or tried to visit uh, Miss Laura and you know Miss, some of you know Miss Laura she hasn't been here in a long time because of the COVID issue and now she's got some serious health problems and she's in the Apache Junction uh, Center there and Walter and I went up to go see her and she was she was sleeping. She had been doing stuff in the morning. The nurse said she's pretty much wiped out from that. And I looked at her and I thought, oh. and I'm thinking, I don't look forward to the day. But I failed to see, sitting on the bed next to her, Jesus Christ. I failed to see that because he was there. And for every one of us, no matter what we go through, He's right there. He said in Hebrews, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. That's a great promise. I don't know where this world's heading, but I know who's heading there with me. The psalmist said, I've been young and now I'm old, and I've not seen the righteous forsaken nor a seed begging bread. So Paul had to deal with this situation. He understood persecution. He wasn't shocked by it. He exercised rights as a Roman citizen. He had an impeccable conduct. No fault found there. He wasn't intimidated by these people. He stayed focused on the essential thing. And by the way, you can't preach a resurrection without a burial, and you can't preach a burial without a death. So when he advocated the resurrection, it's, it's at the end of Christ died on the cross for our sins according to the scripture, and then he was buried, and then he rose again the third day from the dead. That's the end of that formula, if you will. He was preaching the gospel. Because no matter what, that's the issue. 
you know, we don't let circumstances define the mission, but the mission defines the circumstances. The mission is always getting the gospel to people. And then he was promised by Christ. He'd never leave him. Christ never leaves his child alone. So again, I don't know what's happening in our country. I don't know where it's going to go. But Paul is a great example of how to handle it. So if it does get bad, just think about Acts 23. Just think about what Paul went through. And it'll be okay. It'll be okay. I'm hoping the trumpet blows before we get to that point, but if it doesn't, we'll be okay. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for Paul. What a what a preacher he was, what a missionary he was. Of course, you gave him the grace to do everything he did. Just like you give us the grace to do whatever you want us to do. Thank you for that wonderful grace that you give to your children. And thank you, Lord, that no matter what happens, that you'll be there. Whether it's at a a stake to be burned at or whether it's on a hospital bed you'll never leave us nor forsake us thank you for being there with us Father I pray this morning that if anybody here has never trusted Christ as their Savior that maybe you can speak to their hearts this morning we know it's true because you rose from the dead and you said the problem with man is sin You said the only fix for the man's sin problem is a blood atonement. And you chose to be the Lamb of God, the blood atonement to take away the sins of the world. He rose again from the dead. And then you said, come unto me. You said you would freely give us the gift of eternal life if we want it. So I pray this morning, Lord, if anybody here has never trusted Christ as their Savior, that they might receive that gift this morning. With heads bowed, with eyes closed, the altar will be open this morning. You do as God leads you to do. But if you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, let me encourage you to do that this morning. Because I know this, that once you leave this world, there is no changing of the mind You can only repent in this life. And repentance is very simple. To turn away from everything you believe in that's contrary to the scripture and agree with God. All you need to do is agree with God that you're a sinner. Agree with God you cannot save yourself. Agree with God that your only hope is what Jesus did on the cross for you 2,000 years ago. And then exercise faith in that and call upon the Lord and ask him to save you. And he'll save you in a split second. You've never trusted Christ. We ask you to do that this morning. We're going to give an invitation in just a minute as we sing. Invitation, very simple. You get out of the seat that you're in. You walk to one of these aisles and then you walk to the front. And somebody will meet you up here with the Bible take you into my office and show you how to trust Christ as your Savior. But it's your call. It's your choice. It's your decision. So you do as God leads you to do this morning. Brother Walter, come ahead.